right where you're sitting now. Hello there and welcome to episode 83 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. Um, just me this week, uh, no Mark, no no Ulysses Black. We are. I decided to just press on and record a bunch of these interviews on my own and actually I quite enjoy doing that sometimes. So uh, sorry if you're uh, looking forward to the words of wisdom um, from, from Mr. Mark Satir, but uh, he will be back in the next episode, which we're recording in two days time. So... Yeah, we've got a bunch of episodes coming out. I think for a while they're going to be two a week because we have so many booked now, and um, I'm having really you know good fun doing these episodes, and uh, I'm really enjoying being back back in the fray. And uh, today's episode is is a good one. It's with Mr. Richard Kretz or R. E. Kretz, uh, as he calls himself on his book, um, and the book is the Alchemical Search for the Unified Field. Uh, Pythagorean, Hermetic and Shamanic Journeys into Invisible and Ethereal Realms. Uh, the book basically touches on uh, the kind of the study or uh, the uh, the quest to find the Philosopher's Stone of Alchemy and it looks at it from a spiritual perspective and uh, our guest is a former Freemason uh, he, he was a Freemason for a long time I think for about 20 years and um, we've discussed all kinds of interesting interesting stuff that i think you'll find interesting if you're especially if you're interested in alchemy like i am um i'm, I'm somewhat of a an alchemy noob but uh i think i think you'll find it interesting and i think i think we're, we touch upon some interesting points in in this uh in this interview some of the stuff that's not in the book as well so there's some uh, some episode exclusives in here but uh yeah it's, it's something that's plagued the minds of men and women the world around is that the quest for the philosopher's stone and we've touched upon it in in the past when we've discussed the count saint germain and i believe we took we touched briefly on the count saint germain although i believe there might have been some some sort of confusion as to who he actually is uh but anyway the the uh, conversation the conversation's uh, an interesting one. This is a this is a one of my favourite kinds of episodes. It's very interesting, and the guests are a really good guy. So, anyway, let's go over to him now. Oh, and by the way, if you uh, of, of you know someone who prefers a visual experience, the interview section of this episode will be on YouTube on the YouTube channel at Sitting Now. So, if you want to uh, hop over there and see my uh, orc-like goblin-like face um then uh, and and of course the wonderful face of mr mr kretz then um yeah you, you you're more than welcome to uh, to go over there and check it out uh, and i won't hold it against you um even though you will be you know punished in a certain way by having to look at my ghastly visage <laughs> Hello, Richard Kretz. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I uh, really appreciate you giving us some of your time. I was wondering, could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? Okay, uh, a little bit about myself. I've been a student of esoterica or occultism uh, most of my life. I've been a mason, uh, various bodies for over 20 years. Uh, former military been a performance consultant, worked, working in the IT telecom industries, and uh, have done quite a few things. Um, for the past 20 years, 
I've been very involved with research or historical research of the Philosopher's Stone. Um, and with that in mind, you know, I've actually found four aspects of it. And the aspect of the of the stone that I emphasize in my book, it regards the um, stone being a vehicle uh, to attain a higher level conscious a state of consciousness uh, through meditation um, to spiritually become at some point better than we once were. And it's a slow methodical process that occurs with, you know, time. And often we're not really aware of the changes that are occurring. Yeah, I've definitely found that with, I do transcendental meditation. Um, I've been in that for about seven years now, every day, twice a day. And you don't at first really spot the differences, but what I've found is other people start to spot the differences before me, actually, weirdly. Um, my partner said I've she's noticed like over a year, a period of one year, I sort of became far more, I listened a lot more. And, you know, it's, it's strange, isn't it? How some of these things, you have to be sort of patient with them, don't you? Yes. <laughs> you know, I studied under the Maharishi back in 74. Oh, wow. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little while ago. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's an, it's definitely an interesting um, sort of endeavor. But uh, yeah, um, so let's let's go because you were a Freemason for a long time, and this book is is quite Freemason heavy. Um, your new book, which we should mention, is the uh, Alchemical Search for the Unified Field um, on Inner Traditions. And um, oh, that's meant to bang there. Um, but it's very steeped in Freemasonry. And one thing we've had Freemasons on the show before, but we've always kind of had this assumption that people kind of know the mechanics of Freemasonry and what, what Freemasonry actually is. But I think what would be interesting would be to kind of go into some of the basics of what Freemasonry actually is and why it was that you had to kind of go off on your own mission to really, you know, discover these uh, more esoteric origins and why it wasn't taught in Freemasonry. It might be interesting to look at some of that. Okay. Um, you know, and that, that's a very fair question. Uh, a lot of folks would like to know. Um, I, First of all, Masonry or Freemasonry uh, is a very good organization. I mean, they've got some wonderful philanthropies. Uh, the intent is to to help others, uh, and that's that's very admirable. Uh, when you go through the degrees of Masonry, the three degrees, um, they're quite impressive. Um, they leave uh, a very strong impression or have an impact on you personally. And that's the intent of most initiations, regardless of, you know, the fraternity or any other body. And, and that's that's wonderful. And as you're going through there, I mean, these degrees, it's just kind of overwhelming and you get caught up in it, you know, in, in what's going on. And then afterwards, you're reflecting on, what really happened? You know, what was I really going through? What was I experiencing? And as a result, uh, the, these questions begin to bubble up to the surface. You know, like, what, what was this thing that they were doing with me? You know, what does it mean? You know, what are the secrets? You know, and so these are questions that I had. 
And in my time with the fraternity, you know, I've discovered a lot of other guys have these same questions. And I would ask these questions and I wasn't getting the answers that I was hoping uh, to, to get. You know, I was hoping that, okay, yeah, I'm a Mason now. I should be privy to the secrets of Freemasonry. No, that really wasn't the case. Um, so I, I started asking these questions, and the brothers were, were really good. They were knowledgeable to a certain extent about various things. But where I, I found difficulty was the explanations I was given were too often biblically oriented. You know, they had some religious context. Okay, well, that, that's fine. And, you know, beyond that, you know, if I started questioning that, they would go off into this uh, philosophical existentialist, you know, discussing, okay, the nature of humanity, you know, and life and all that kind of stuff. Well, oh, that that that's nice, you know, but philosophy never does provide any answers. Uh, it's the nature of it. Uh, it's to ask questions. It's not to provide answers. Uh so that really wasn't taking me anywhere. So if I continued to press, you know, say, hey, you know, really, what does this mean? Ultimately, I was told that my answers are found either in the rituals or the lectures, or you really don't need to know it. It has nothing to do with what we're doing. Well, if it doesn't have anything to do with what we're doing, why do we do it? What does it mean? And you know, so there would the frustration would begin to build. And at the end of the day, what it amounts to is as well intended and as knowledgeable as the brethren may be, they didn't know the secrets. The secrets have been lost a long time ago. Um, our society has changed. Our cultures have changed. Uh, our knowledge of things that were commonplace done even 100, 200 years ago, has changed. And a lot of these techniques, these memories, this history has been lost for one reason or another, or it has been supplanted by other things that we today now perceive as truth that weren't even conceived of, you know, many, many years ago. So there is this big cycle of change. Information, you know, it just historically it gets lost um, and so i decided to set out on this quixotic quest and hoping i wouldn't be jousting with windmills and was looking for answers you know i wanted to recover my mission you know was to try attempt to recover some of this lost knowledge discover okay well what were or what are these secrets, you know, they're, you know, what are they all about? And so it's been a very long process over many, many years. Uh, it's been a rough road. Uh, and as we would say in, in masonry, um, ruffians have been countered thus along and incidents have occurred. Um, <laughs> it's the nature of the beast. There is always going to be pushback. Um, so, you know, I started traveling down that path, and the more I learned, um, the more questions that I had, and it, the more it, it made some of my my brothers uncomfortable. 
and not wishing to disrespect or offend any of them. You know, I look at it this way. At some point when we're growing up, we have to leave home, you know, and venture out on our own um, and make our own way in life. And that's that's what my take was. I learned an awful lot, you know, from my brothers, from the fraternity. And I choose to focus on the positive aspects of that experience. And there is a lot for anyone that's interested in becoming a Mason to to learn and benefit from um, through their affiliation with the fraternity. Yeah. One thing that's always interested me about the Masons, and I've, we discussed this a little bit in our email conversation, is um, a, a lot. I see a lot of um, literature about Freemasonry where they attempt to make a link between the Masons and the Templars. I was wondering, could you... Uh, because um, I've seen counter rhetoric about this as well, where people say, "Well, that's not that's not possible." But could you talk a little bit about that? Because you you do have a a good take on this. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, we could really go down a rabbit hole with that. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's it's a popular misconception that you know all the Templars were Masons and all the Masons were Templars, and that that that's not true at all. Um, just to try and keep things simple. Okay, and I'm not going to go into the history of Masonry or the history of the Templars. They were two. All I will say is they were two separate organizations that worked together. So when you had the Latin rule that um, St. Bernard developed back in what was it, 1128 to 29, the Council of Troyes is when it was presented. That evolved later on, and I want to say it was sometime maybe in 1150-ish ballpark. Uh, I think it was under the, the French rules where they actually acknowledged masonry as a category of Templars. They were using masons as part of them, as an affiliate to help build whatever structures they were building, whether it was to renovate a cathedral like Chartres or build another church or a palace or something. Yeah, they incorporated, you know, Masons in order to assist in doing that. And then later on, as things evolved, uh, once the Templars were dispersed after 1307, um, we find that you know, the Freemason guilds or the Stonemason guilds um, continue to exist. And when modern masonry um, came back around and it was it was getting off the ground in, and existing, um, it was predicated on the structure of the Stonemason guilds. So especially those of the German uh, guilds, I want to say it was Hanover from... There was a meeting there where they had a Grand Lodge sometime in the 1400s. Uh, don't hold me to that. Uh, it's just off the top of my head. But they used that structure in order to restructure or to reinvigorate the uh, modern Freemasonry as a fraternal order. And from that point, instead of being operative, act as actual stonemasons, it became speculative. 
um, which, well, to my mind, when one speculates, it's a polite word for guessing. In other words, they use, you know, symbolic uh, attributes of various working tools to represent something more ethereal than literal. Why do you think it is that um, Freemasonry has always been kind of the target of, um, say, conspiracy theorists? Or, you know, the, it, the, it, it, it seems to be a group that, I mean, during the war it was picked on, you know. Um, why why does Freemasonry seem to be the the butt of attack so often, you think, from these, these groups? Well, I, I think that's a fair question. I don't know the actual answer to it. I can only speculate. Um, and that would be fear. Fear of a group of people having knowledge, having secrets, okay? And, you know, when they have these secrets, they have this knowledge, and we don't know what it is, we become afraid of what can be done with what we think they have. So in that regard, it becomes, you know, to say that this group were that good, for example, like the persecution of the witches, you know, during medieval times, you know, it was the same, essentially the same idea. You know, they had certain knowledge, skills and abilities that the church didn't like, you know, so, oh, we can't have that conflict because it was mostly women. The church is, is mostly men. We have to eradicate them, you know, so we come up with all these charges. Ultimately, that's the same thing that happened with the Templars. They were accused of heresy. Um, and what does heresy mean? Heresy means that you dare to question orthodox ways of thinking. You're, you're not a conformist. And that makes folks in power very uncomfortable, that you dare to question. So the idea that, you know, Masons have this knowledge they have these secrets and they're not willing to share them um that makes folks uncomfortable so they begin coming up with various stories and ideas uh ac accusations and allegations that oh yeah they can do this they can do that you know because they know things but it has no basis in truth whatsoever uh so there you know there's the irony you know it's just uh as fdr once said there's nothing to fear but fear itself mm, yeah true and can can masons join other orders or is, is it for example you know there are other um esoteric orders like golden dawn or um oto or you know these other groups it, it, can they skip between different orders? I know that there are orders within orders in in, in Freemasonry, but um, if is it frowned upon uh, to be members of various orders at the same time? Or well, again, um, when you're looking at Masonry, there is no king of Masonry, so to speak. There's not an emperor. Um, you have all these jurisdictions throughout the world uh you know more often than not they're they're predicated these jurisdictions are predicated on a country uh it could be a region in the americas within the united states each state has its own jurisdiction um and that governs what occurs within their geographic area 
Um, so to say that across the board, that membership in some of these other itinerant bodies is uh, accepted or tolerated or even approved, or that they are not, they're, they're, they're frowned upon and discouraged. Yeah, there isn't a clear answer to that. It again, it appears, uh, it depends on the jurisdiction that you happen to be in and the personality that you're dealing with. Um, they all have their own opinions and their rationales. So, you know, I, there's not a clear cut answer to it. I know many that are members of different bodies outside of masonry, whether it's OTO, uh, Golden Dawn, or or some of the mem many others that are out there. And then I've also heard some that say, oh, no, you can't do that because it's frowned upon or you're not allowed to do it for whatever reason. So it, it can go both ways. OK, so let's get to the book. I mean, um, how long after leaving the order did you did you start researching for this book or was it something you were researching throughout your time? Oh, I've been actually doing the research on the stone, as I said earlier, and the and the Templars for well over 20 years. Um, so, you know, I was doing this research and I began doing some writings, publishing some small articles and that sort of thing. And I began to, to come up with enough volume of material uh, that folks said, well, why is this in a book? Because, you know, we would really like to have something that we can refer back to. And I said, okay, so I decided to say, you know, let's take and put some of these things together, get it some structure and, you know, figure out what it is that folks really wanted. Number one, what do they want? What do they need? And how can we provide that for them? So that's how, you know, I, I actually began putting the book together and why it's structured the way that it is. Yeah, and you you sort of structure it around the bell, the book, and the candle that you the earlier on. Yes. But yeah, could you go into a little bit of why you chose to do it that way? Or <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually kind of fun, <laughs> um, because if you look at it, really, um, there's a movie. I think it has uh, Jack Lemmon and Kim Novak and a few other. In named actors from the late 50s called Bell, Book, and Candle, and it has this cat in there, and they're supposed to be kind of like modern-day witches. It's it's a romantic comedy. It, it's fun to watch, but no, the book really doesn't have anything to do with that. Uh, folks often ask, though, and I, and I get a kick out of it. Um, then the other thing is, well, if you're very familiar with the occult, um, Bell, Book, and Candle is a reference to the Catholic Church an excommunication ritual of heretics where, you know, they would ring the bell, they would actually close the book and extinguish the candle and say, we're done with you. You are excommunicated. You're no longer a part of the church. However, on the opposite side of that coin, where my take is, from a more occultist uh, perspective, what you do is you ring the bell. You're calling attention. You know, you're ringing attention as an initiate. 
to say, hey, okay, I've got this awareness. Now what do I do with it? And then you open the book so that you can learn. And then you light the candle so that you can spread your light, your knowledge of what you have learned. So that's really what my meaning behind bell, book, and candle is. It's to, you know, call the initiates. It's to say, okay, you know, stimulate awareness is to say, okay, we have to learn. We have to open a book and acquire knowledge. And then we have to go out and seek this light you know, by applying our knowledge in order to obtain wisdom. And that's pretty much the premise of it. So in, early on in the book, you talk about something called the order of, of, of uh, I can never pronounce this right, Ophiuchus, is it? Uh, yes, some say Ophiuchus, some say Ophiuchus. Um, and that provides the groundwork for understanding masonry, you know, all in a historical context which again, that relates to the bell um, because, and the reason for that is when you're initiated into masonry, the first degree, um, you're just given some very high level background information. You really don't know what's going on. Uh, no secrets are revealed. Uh, it's just historical context. So that's what I'm providing, you know, in the bell uh, in as the order of Ophicus saying, okay, yeah, you know, this is a symbol and this is what it represents and the background behind it, you know, who Ophicus was, you know, and then as we go through, progress through the book, we can see, okay, well, this is how Ophicus, you know, what he was, you know, mythologically uh, is applied with now chemical process or as a, uh, a spiritual shamanic process. It always comes full circle, just like an, an Ouroboros. Mm. And so it might be um, for people who don't know who Ophiuchus is, I still can't say the word properly. Um, who could you talk a little bit about the kind of the myth of Ophiuchus and um, why that connection to alchemy exists, kind of thing? Okay. Uh, Ophiuchus, if you're familiar with it, is symbolized by an Ouroboros. An Ouroboros is a, a serpent or a snake that is often depicted being in a circle consuming his own tail. Uh, and really what that means, it's a beginning and an end. It's an, a never-ending cycle. And that's really what Ophiuchus is. And we find him represented, you know, in many ways um, through mythology, um, including at Delphi, you know, the uh, the Temple of Delphi. And, you know, we also find him as a, as a constellation uh, in concert with uh, Hercules and uh, some of the other from an astrological perspective. Ophiuchus, if you're looking at traditional Western astrology, there are 12 houses. But in, in Chaldean astrology, there are 13, which is places Ophiuchus, which is only considered to rule from like late November to mid-December. It's not even it's only for a few weeks. It's not even an entire month uh, towards the end of our, our solar year. But 
it's rather important, you know, when you pers- when you think about it in that if Ophiuchus is the 13th house, you know, looking at what number 13 actually means numerologically, and, I, and I'm not going to go down that road right now, but 13 actually is an important number. Uh, it's not bad luck. Um, that came about as a result of the Templars being persecuted on Friday the 13th. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they have nothing to do with one another. Uh, however, the number 13 is actually 12 plus 1. And when we reflect on that, you know, having Ophiuchus as, you know, the head of the um, astrological houses makes sense. Because if you go into a courtroom, what do you have? You have a judge and 12 jurors, Jesus and 12 disciples. You know, and we can go on and on with that representation, but it's usually it's 12 plus one. It's not just straight out 13. Um, I mean, if it was 13, we could do, you know, theological or uh, theological uh, addition and reduction. And 13 would represent one plus three or four, which is very stable. And again, you know, in that in that context, yeah, 13 also makes sense. And the next sort of, I guess, character uh, within the book is Pythagoras. And this is another thing I've always kind of been quite, I've, you know, I was saying to you earlier, I've been, always been quite interested in alchemy, but Pythagorean theory and the kind of the so-called cult of Pythagoras has always really interested me. So what drew you to Pythagoras in this book? Or in this research, I should say. Well, Pythagoras I found very intriguing because of the breadth and the depth of his knowledge, uh, the extent of his travels and, you know, what all he had been involved with. Um, I mean, when you go back and you look at some of these things, it's not just the mathematics, it's how he approached mathematics um, and geometry. And we refer to, you know, Pythagorean theorem, which is actually a, an aspect of Euclidean geometry, um, you know, and he's looking at all of these things that are essentially um, the seven, seven principles of the universal principles, whether it's the sense of mentalism or the all, uh, gender, correspondence, cause and effect, uh, vibration, all of these things. And he, he brings them together, you know, and he was really uh, a thoughtful force to reckon with um, in what he was thinking about. I mean, if you look at his uh, Universal Musica, you know, the the songs of the universe, to, for someone back in 300 B.C. to even conceive that the planets themselves were vibrating and creating... Uh, this vibration could be perceived as a musical note, you know, that just blows my mind. Um, You know, and, you know, the the sequence of numbers, uh, there's just very many, many things that Pythagoras did. And he he thought of himself as a god, and many thought of him as a god, um, and he was associated in that regard with Apollo. 
So, yeah, Pythagoras is in, incredibly important and impactful, uh, not just within the occult world or esoterica, the orders of things uh, to understand, but mathematically and whether we realize it or not, we interface with his ideas on a not just a regular basis, but a daily basis. Um, it's just, you know, what he did was just, you know, phenomenal. And, the, you know, the, I referred to it earlier, but this sort of cult of Pythagoras, he, he actually formed a, 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 almost like a mystery school, didn't he? That, um, yeah, it appeared yeah. to have like a, almost a, it had like a, an, a veil of secrecy over it and a, a, almost an initiatic structure, I think. Yes, it did. Um, in that regard, I think it was based in, I want to say, southern Italy. And I, I don't recall the name of the town off the top of my head. And he was a bit of a, a funny turn in that, yeah, he was a vegetarian, refused to eat beans, that kind of stuff. But, yeah, he had a certain structure. Um, they would have to take, you know, some vowels uh, in front of the... Um, Oh, Perigenia, I believe it was called. And they were limited, you know, it was a, a silence and secrecy. Um, they weren't allowed to discuss anything that uh, they were involved in. And only if they, you know, more often than not, and this was a common thing within most of your um, guilds uh, that evolved later on, uh, apprentices really weren't allowed to have any conversations with their superiors uh, for quite a long time. And it depends on, on what it was, whether it could be up to a year or more. Um, the whole idea was to listen and to learn. And you can't learn while you're talking. Okay. Yeah. And um, I just I wonder why it was so secret. In, in you know why why did he sort of put this veil of secrecy over the um over this school i don't it seems strange <laughs> i'm not quite sure why do you have any idea i i wish i did but <laughs> you know i'm not you know 2300 years old to go back and be able to, <laughs> to to visit with him and ask that question which i would love to do but um i'm sure they had the reasons and again you know uh, he wasn't the only one that practiced that. I mean, it, it is common practice in many of the ancient orders or mystical orders uh, going back, not just into Egypt, Greece or Egypt or even to Mesopotamia. Uh, and it was brought forward even into the guild structure. Uh, you didn't discuss uh, matters of the guild with someone who was not a verified member and you you know that's where these ideas of signs and handset shakes uh certain secret words and things uh evolve from because be, before you could have these conversations you had to verify that they hurt, were who they said they were uh in order to keep your trade secrets secret mm. yeah it's fair enough so one thing you discuss in the book Sort of shortly after the Pythagore Pythagorean stuff, is the kingdom of heaven, and this is another thing that's always interested me as well because it's one of these things that I think a lot of people just think it, uh, they're talking literally about heaven, but the actual term has a different kind of meaning, doesn't it? Really? Yes, it does. You know, heaven is you know something that 
we create within ourselves. Um, in that regard, yeah, it is very ethical um, because it's created in our minds. Um, it doesn't isn't necessarily a physical place. I mean, it's possible that it could be, but it's an abstract that that we create for ourselves. Um, and it's the idea that it's a good place where we are the best that we can be, uh, you know, physically, mentally, spiritually. Um, and that's how we would really choose to present ourselves when our time on this earth uh, expires. So, you know, when someone passes in that little piece in the book I put on that, the kingdom of heaven, um, you know, why should we lament for them when, you know, they're released from their, their physical bonds here? Uh, they're going to a better place. They're no longer, you know, being, you know, challenged in different, difficult socioeconomic times or physically, you know, you know, experiencing pain or suffering, you know, they're being released to go to someplace that is hopefully better that they have created for themselves. And in that regard, we should really celebrate their lives and that our lives touched, you know, and, and cherish that memory. One thing, this is a bit of a off topic thing here, but, um, it just suddenly sprang into my mind uh the obviously we're going to move on to talk, discussing alchemy now um <clears throat> and we've been discussing freemasonry and we did an episode a few years ago um about a, a character called the count san germain and i was wondering if you've ever come across this character in your research um and if so because he was an alchemist who was also a freemason um He's just a very interesting character, and I was wondering if if you'd ever encountered any kind of um, any writings about him or anything at all. About San Germain, yeah, I'm not clear with him. He's somewhat of a myth, mystical, mythical character, I suppose. Uh, allegedly, found the philosopher's stone and um, is alive still today. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting myth, but. Um, he was certainly he certainly yeah, I existed. Mean, there, I'm very familiar with, for for example, with uh, Nicholas Flamel, mm. who you know is alleged to have found the stone, and we still don't know if he's truly dead or not. He just <laughs> might be running around as a time traveler. But <laughs> um, you know, we could look at that. We could look at you know uh, Count Michael Meyer. Um, oh, you said Saint Germain. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I'm thinking, you know, it's Saint Saint Germain. That would have been uh, Francis Bacon. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's this, there's a story about Bacon as well that uh, he didn't really die. Um, in fifteen, excuse me, sixteen twenty six is when he was alleged to have died, and the circumstances around his his passing are are, are rather uh, interesting. They're curious. In that supposedly he was out with uh, somebody returning home and he just wanted to see how well uh, a chicken would keep if it was frozen. So he ended up taking this chicken out into the snow to bury it. Uh, something along that line ends up catching pneumonia and dying. But the question is, is 
you know, did he really die? Because it, it, the circumstances are just so bizarre. Uh, and there was a story afterwards that he had actually gone over to uh, France and then Germany. And I believe he ended up in the Austrian Alps uh, for at least a period of time and was known there. Uh, he stayed with this family, supposedly that has records of it, and was known as Saint Germain. Yes, Bacon was definitely an alchemist. He was an understudy, a protege of Dr. John D. Both were very, very familiar with the Philosopher's Stone and did a lot of work on that. Um, what's also interesting, at that same period of time, you know, we're looking at the, the late 16th century, early 17th century. So what I find most curious is that um, there were four folks that were alleged to have died, but may not have, that were, were alchemists in dealing with the uh, Philosopher's Stone, one of which was Bacon, whom we just talked about as St. Germain. Another would have been, um, what was his name, Kit, Christopher, um, oh, I'm having a brain cramp here. Very well known. Uh, then there was Edward de Vere, and um, of course, Nicholas Flamel. So, you know, the circumstances around um, their disappearances, let us say. Oh, that's going to bug the dickens out of me until I can remember his last name. It wasn't Renton. You, I'm sure you know him quite well. Uh, they called him Kit, but his first name was Christopher. Oh, yeah. Um, um, I know who you mean now. That's going to drive me mad as well. <laughs> he, was supposedly, he was supposedly murdered while having lunch mm, that's right. uh, or yeah. dinner. And it, you know, that it was very suspicious with that as well. Um, again, you know, Nicholas Flamel, his past, his alleged passing was suspicious. And the same thing with Edward de Vere. And all of these guys had this association with Bacon and D. And were, work, were alchemists working on the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, Michael Meyer, whose illustration I touch on in my book, he was in that group as well. Um, and then we can, you know, dive, uh, get down into, okay, you know, the alchemical wedding um, that was put on by uh, James the uh, the sixth slash first for his daughter Elizabeth with uh, Count Frederick of Germany. He lived, anyway, you know, which was a, a real thing. It, it's it was a most curious time is about all I can say about it. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, when you're looking at alchemy, this is when the period, a hundred year period is when you really have it at its apex from say 1550 to maybe 1650. Um, I mean, you've got D and Bacon and Kelly, who's the chief slid off his cracker. Um you know, Boyle and Fled and and all of these guys. And it was just a fantastic period. But the question is, why were they so keen on the Philosopher's Stone? Why did they risk everything to try and find it or recreate it? And that's an unanswered question. Yeah. Well, we've 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 
we've brought it we've touched on it so we should really um sort of discuss it i guess uh, what is the philosopher's stone well the philosopher's stone again you know i've been researching it for well over 20 years um I'll begin by saying most folks think of the stone uh, primarily as an alchemical process where you change lead into gold. Okay. That isn't actually correct, but that's what most folks think of, of the philosopher's stone, um, that it has something to do with change. In reality, there are, I, I have found four aspects of the stone. The first is what I've discussed in my book, in that the one of the process of the stone is as a vehicle uh, for us to attain a higher level of consciousness uh, or enlightenment through meditation. It becomes a process of spiritual transformation. So in that regard, yes, it is alchemical. From the second aspect is a strictly alchemical one, but one cannot literally physically change lead into gold. Lead is an element, and as such, it's pure. It has no impurities. So what are we discussing alchemically? We're discussing taking something that has impurities. In this instance, it would be galena, which is a lead ore. And with the galena, what we do is we, we put it in this double boiler, this bur burner, and we burn off all the impurities, whether you know it's the mercury, the sulfide gases, and and where it's nothing more than really ash with this little chunk of pure lead that remains. And on this lead, we have this whitish powder that's referred to as a bullion that contains silver and trace amounts of gold referred to as salts. We then take that bullion and we have to take make another process and distill that down so that we can actually extract the silver and the gold. So Galena actually is where we get a lot of silver from, uh, but it does have very trace amounts of gold in it. So that's why it's the whole idea behind, okay, you can take, you know, lead and change it into gold. You, you can do that, but not really. If you were going to do it literally, you would need a, a nuclear reaction. And it's just not worth it. It's too expensive, too much trouble. Um, but that same process where we're doing it physically as an alchemist, you know, burning off all this stuff, we're doing the same thing uh, spiritually when we're trying to attain a higher level of consciousness. We're trying to take our raw animalistic cells, uh, as Masons would say, this rough ash or this huge block of, of whatever, you know, it's very rough and craggy. And we've got to chip away at it or we've got to, to burn it down. We have to reduce it and get rid of all the impurities. And spiritually, we're doing the same thing. We're divesting ourselves 
of the superfluities of life. We're burning off the impurities of our egos so that we can become better than we once were. And in masonry, when we achieve that, we become a smooth ashlar. We've taken this huge rush at rough ashlar, chiseled away at it a little bit at a time to where it's now a very small rock that's smooth and polished. It can be fit into a temple. You know, um, it's something that we can be proud of. It's something that we venerate uh, because we've worked hard at it and we've removed all of these impurities. We've distilled ourselves. Um, the third aspect of the stone, to answer your question, is a very intriguing one. Um, if and I don't get into this into the in in the book. Um, it's kind of like an aside. The only thing discussed in the book really is the alchemical and the spiritual process of transformation. Uh, the third and fourth aspects that I'm going to touch on, uh, actually, if you're looking at the um, illustration of Michael Meyer in his uh, book, Atalanta, uh, Atalanta Fusions, it's Emblem 21. And if you really take a hard look at that and decide to break it down, you'll find that in a two-dimensional uh, depiction, it's going to look very much like the uh, traditional symbol for a philosopher's stone in a two-dimensional uh, geometric form where you've got a triangle with a square, or excuse me, a triangle within a circle within a square within a circle, uh, that kind of thing. And that, that's great. That's our starting point. What we have to teach ourselves to do, and this is important if you're involved with the esoteric or the occultist, is learn how to see beyond. And this is what shamanism helped me to do, uh, to be able to advance beyond my Western occultist thinking. And in thinking beyond, we have to be able to part the veils and see beyond. Um, in this instance, what I'm talking about is taking a two-dimensional model of the Philosopher's Stone and envisioning it as a three-dimensional model. And once we do that, we'll find within it what are referred to as the five platonic solids that were identified by Pythagoras. And they're nested in there kind of like Russian dolls, but they also interact with one another and they use vibration. And what this means to you is this model is potentially a vehicle for travel in the time-space continuum uh, because it, it, you use the uh, seven universal principles uh, and most of it has to do with vibration, frequency. And we find frequency in our five senses, whether it happens to be our vision using light, uh, smell, our taste, uh, sound, all of these things are predicated on vibration. And when we're looking at that, you know, at, at this object, uh, it emanates light, it uses vibration. And again, it could be a vehicle for travel in the space-time continuum. Uh, that needs to be validated. At this point, I can't, you know, say, yeah, it's validated or it's refuted. But I think it merits further investigation. 
The fourth aspect of the stone involves what we refer to as the elixir of life. And that's something else that folks may have heard of. Okay, well, what is the elixir of life? Well, some will tell you, oh, it's this flower or this plant that they use to mix up and and extract something from. I I think it's something entirely different in that, again, you know, going back to Meyer's model and looking at the platonic solids, um, we find that these same platonic solids in the way they're they're situated together, um, they form the mathematical base uh, how should I put this a mathematical virology model for what's referred to as a biophagous organism uh, and these organisms were the largest uh, DNA replicating uh, means within the primordial soup of ancient earth in other words they were the basis for life and as such, you know, that we're looking at how this is done using what we call in masonry, the oblong square. Um, and it can be used as it ends up, again, keeping things simple as, as much as I can. Uh, it looks a lot, ends up in a three-dimensional form as a capsule. And in this regard, it can be used as a vehicle for panspermia. In other words, not just the seeding of earth, because these biophagous organisms are constantly bombarding Earth. And when we think about that, okay, if we've got biological organisms on asteroid dust or comet dust, whatever, coming into Earth's atmosphere, that naturally tells us, yes, there is life beyond Earth, but where and what? So it's not a question of if there is something beyond us, it's where is it and what is it? It does exist. We've got proof of that every single day. And the the interesting thing is that if you're looking at the basic components of life, the seed of life or the flower of life, however you like to turn it, it's in capsule form. I mean, you, you look at what uh, an egg is, you know, for example, that of a honeybee, it looks like a little capsule. A grain of rice looks like a capsule. Uh, the seeds from a flower or a fern, they're small capsules. So that's what panspermia is. It's seeding life somewhere beyond where we are. And it's quite possible that life was seeded here because it was providing the DNA within the primordial soup where life began, you know, billions of years ago. That's interesting. So those are the four aspects of the stone, if that answers your question. Yeah. One thing you you just mentioned, it was the oblong square, and that, that, that that's quite a, a big part of your book. Could you talk a little bit more about the oblong square, the kind of connections between alchemy and masonry again there, aren't there? Uh, yeah, there there is. Um, how should I put this? Okay, when you're in masonry, there's this reference to a thing that they say is the form of the lodge called an oblong square and they provide this ephoral description of it you know it's you know got these strange dimensions but it's actually a very vague description it's really difficult to say what it is so i examined that 
And I said, okay, well, how do we define what this oblong square is? Well, we can say we can take two squares that are conjoined, which will form an oblong of squares. So that's one way of looking at an oblong square. Um, two squares that are conjoined that have a the one ratio of this of their length to their their uh, width. Another way of looking at an oblong square is taking a square and rotating it 45 degrees, in which case the square is now in an oblong position as either a diamond or some would refer to it as a lozenge. So that's another way of, of looking at an oblong square. But to my mind, it had to be a little bit something more than that. And I decided to try and figure out what it is using geometry. Um, so one of the big things in masonry is always, oh, this point within a circle. Well, what the heck does that mean? What's it got to do with every, anything? It has everything to do with a whole lot of things. Because you take these Masonic compasses or dividers, however you like to term them, term them and you would inscribe a circle. And as you inscribe this circle where you have that center point, or that, that center point, um, you've got your point. You have a point within the circle. Um, to create the oblong square, you do that. And then what you do is on either side, left and right, of this circle that you've inscribed, you inscribe two other circles so that their circumference will intersect the circumpunct of the first circle that you inscribed. So you have three a chain of three circles that have within which are two Vishap Pisces. Okay, that's cool. But that still doesn't make sense as far as an oblong square. Uh, at that point you would take and square the center center circle, the first one that you first did. And then you erase all the stuff in the middle. And what you end up with is a racetrack. You know, I said, I'll be darned. I got to looking at that. And what we find is that with regard to the Philosopher's Stone, that's oftentimes a description that we receive, that it's an oblong square. It's this oblong where the two ends are kind of rounded, but the sides are straight. So we find that when we're looking at Shiva Lingam stones uh, from India. We find that when we're looking at the cartouches of the pharaohs in Egypt. We also find it in the cathedrals Notre Dame, in their floor plans that's integrated in there. And, you know, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, hey, that's pretty cool. How can we take this a step further? Again, reflecting on, back on some of the things that we learn in masonry, there's a reference to the fourth part of a circle. And that used to be a real head scratcher. What the dickens does that mean? Well, you know, folks will say, well, you know, traditionally, you know, you, you take a fourth of a circle, you know, and it, you end up with something that looks like a Pac-Man. You know, <laughs> it's... it's it, a quarter of it is gone. Well, yeah, I guess you can look at it that way. Um, that would be a fourth part of a circle. You know, it could represent a number of things. 
But my mind is a little bit more flexible than that. What I did is I took this basic form that we just discussed about of the oblong square, and I said, well, what happens if I divide that into fourths? And I did it, and lo and behold, once I did that, I found that contained within that center circle, after it had been divided into fourths, was an encircled hexagram. And it was the same as I had found when I was initially doing the uh, geometric model for the philosopher's stone, you know, looking at it as a 2D model based on what Meyer and uh, Flamel had designed. And it's like, I'll be damned. Excuse my language. <laughs> you know, this is the flower of life. You know, it's because you're finding this, you know, Star of David, this, you know, uh, hexagram that's encircled or a seal of Solomon um, in there. And that's what it represents. So you've got in a 3D form, you have a capsule. You know, this racetrack becomes a capsule in a 3D form. And then within it, you have this symbol for life. And a capsule, the really cool thing about it is they are structurally very, very resilient uh, and can withstand the rigors of space. Uh, they withstand a lot of external pressure. It takes a lot. Just kind of like an egg, if you're, if you're pressing an egg from either end, it takes quite a bit of pressure to, to break that egg. Uh, from the inside coming out, it doesn't take much at all. But, you know, end to end, trying to put out external pressure on it, it's, it's actually kind of difficult to break an egg. But yet inside of that egg, you know, we have a yolk where, you know, at conception, life has begun. You know, you've got that divine spark, the union of opposites between male and female, it creates the divine spark. We have conception, and life begins within the yolk of that egg. That is the seed of life. I think it was Mayers that um, he's he in your book. You mentioned he came to the conclusion that uh, the union of man and, and woman created this egg as well. It was like a um, yeah. So he he felt that maybe part of the philosopher's stone w was the union of man and, w and woman. Um, and the, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's the union of opposites. And, you know, it's it's not necessarily, you know, a physical male or a physical like female. The feminine you know? and, the, and the masculine. It's masculine it? and feminine. And it, it comes back to what we had discussed earlier. You know, it's this union of opposites. It's taking, you know, the pillar of Boaz and the pillar of Jacob, the male and the female, and trying to find this middle pillar this compromise so in that regard you could say and i and i touch on this book that may confuse some folks where one plus one doesn't necessarily equal two one plus one equals three the third pillar that's where we find equilibrium that's our compromise and that's our course between you know the the masculine and the feminine um, and it's never a steady course. It fluctuates back and forth a little bit. Um, but that's how we navigate. And that's where we find our sense of balance, our sense of peace and our sense of unity and harmony. 
Yeah, and you you sort of illustrate this with a like a ship going through the two pillars, don't you? Um, and that was uh, yeah. I thought that was, uh, and also the middle pillar is um, within Western esotericism. The middle pillar is a literal. I mean, the Golden Dawn have a thing called the middle pillar ritual, which is uh, it, it's it's you know what you're saying is sort of ringing bells at the moment because I, I you know I've, I've studied that side of things quite a lot, and it's like hey, hang on, there's a you've both come to the same conclusion it feels like <laughs> right well and and that's what's interesting is that you know regardless of the order you know the the body that you're you're involved with you know they have all these really fancy terms you know and it, it's cool you can kind of somewhat figure out what it is but you're never really giving a direct answer as uh, an explanation as okay this is what the middle pillar is Okay, you know, just give it to me straight. You know, don't give me all this song and dance and make me try to figure it out and guess it because nine times out of 10, you're going to be off the mark. So I'm trying to help folks by saying, okay, here's this, a very succinct, clear, you know, explanation of what these things are, what they mean. And with that, you know, they hopefully will get these aha moments and, you know, be able to move forward and, you know, do better than they were once doing. Yeah, because we were saying earlier uh, before we started the interview, there's alchemists have, it, there's a saying, is it obscure, obscurum or something like that? But it's like deliberately obscuring the truth, isn't it? Uh, yes. Um, why do they do that? <laughs> what, what's the kind of, you know, the rationale behind that? You know, is it to create a challenge of some sort of pain point or, you know, um, well, again, you know, uh, you have to understand the nature of the stone. You know, if, considering, you know, the four aspects that I was talking about, they, they'll they use all sorts of descriptions to, as you were saying, you know, camouflage what they're actually doing. Uh, in the case of uh, Sir George Ripley, for example, you know, he had this really long scroll. I forget how many feet long it was. And it used bestiaries to describe the alchemical process. Other folks you'll find use uh, the symbols of uh, religion, you know, the kings and queens and knights, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, it, and they're tr intentionally trying to obscure what it is they're doing. I think as much as, you know, maintaining a trade secret, you know, to keep the competition from, finding out what it is they actually know and are doing uh, that has a lot to do with it. You know, not that, you know, alchemists were going around and stealing another alchemist's work, but they were all searching to try and get this, you know, elusive philosopher's stone to recreate it somehow. Um, and if they were able, able to do that, they didn't want the competition to be able to do it. They want, you know, the exclusivity of it. Um, so it was kind of selfish. Um, yeah, they, they would share knowledge to a certain extent, but again, it was always in, you know, vague illustrations, you know, uh, of some sort. And even the language they would use, which oftentimes was metaphorical or allegorical, um, very, very confused, confusing to the uninitiated. You really had, you know, and you look at the alchemical symbols and what they represent. And it's my goodness, you look at that, and it's not just another language. It's like, 
you know, really, really difficult. And then in addition to, you know, what you might find in a generic sense with these symbols, each alchemist would have his own variations. So it can be a very complicated, confusing process. And I'm trying to cut through all this and say, hey, it's really not all that that difficult. It's quite simple, really. This is the fundamentals of it. You know, don't get hung up on trying to understand what this symbol means because symbols inherently have no, just like words, you can't say this symbol has a clear-cut definition. A symbol can represent many different things to many different people. Yeah. So one thing, once you've kind of, um, I guess, now you know what the Philosopher's Stone is, how do you go about utilizing it? Like, uh, you sort of talk in your book about like electrical circuits and, um, and and third eyes and things like that. I was wondering, could you could you sort of distill that down a little bit for the for the listener? And you know, uh, obviously, without giving, to, I don't want to give the complete end of the book away. We we want people to actually buy it. <laughs> okay, um, let me see here. And I already forgot what, what uh, rephrase the question. Uh, yeah. So, how would you utilize the philosopher's stone? Okay. Well, early on in the book, I, I pose some questions. Um, you have to ask yourself before you even begin your quest, you know, to try and create the stone. You know, what is it that I'm searching for? You know, how am I going to recognize it? You know, uh, what am I going to do with it once I find it? You know, and the answers to those questions are within yourself. You have to ask yourself, you know, what am I going to do with this if I find it? Why am I Why am I looking for it to begin with? You know, these aren't difficult questions, but they're important questions to ask. Because should you be fortunate enough to actually create it or find it, what will you do with it? You know, and that, because... If the stone does what it's alleged to do, it would be not just important, but incredibly powerful. If in And another thought along that line is if the stone wasn't real, then why would the most influential and intelligent people throughout history have searched for it, risking everything in their quest to find it. If there wasn't something to it, why expand all that time and effort? So there must be something to it. There's no smoke without fire, as they say. That's exactly right. So the end of the the big question is you have to answer those preceding questions and ask yourself, if I find it, what am I going to do with it? You know, knowledge is power. So is it a matter of knowledge? Is it a matter of possession? You know, is it a matter of application? You know, these are important questions we have to think about. And Perhaps that's why the alchemical process, you know, regardless of, of how you're pursuing it, is so lengthy. 
you know, because and and it's meditative in that regard, because we really have to reflect, we have to think about what it is we're doing, you know, why we're doing it, and what we hope to gain, you know, at the end in our pursuit. Or are we Don Quixote chasing windows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing, um, sort of wrapping up a bit, but the part of the book that really kind of surprised me, actually, um, in a good way, um, was that often, you know, uh, with books of this kind where, you it, you know, there's a Masonic se- uh, element, there's an alchemical element, you don't often find a shamanic element in there. Um so that was quite refreshing, actually. You talk about this um, al- this shamanic relationship you had at the end with a, a character called Charles, and I was wondering, could you discuss Charles and like why this was such a important part of your your life? Um, you know, right? Um, I believe I alluded to it earlier on when you're looking at uh, Western uh, mysticism, uh, cult takes. It's very masculine in its orientation. It's very structured. Uh, there's a lot of discipline to it. Um, when and I that I had been doing this for most of my life, and I just got to this glass ceiling. I wasn't able to break through it. And about that time, you know, I encountered Charles. I had just become a master mason, and Charles introduced me very slowly to this shamanic path. And within shamanism, it's in contrast to Western occult or mystical thinking, it's very feminine-oriented. It's nature-based. It's more emotional, uh, more grounded and connected uh, and and thoughtful in that regard. Uh, It it has an an easier flow to it. it. It doesn't have this rigid structure where you know you've got these parameters and you've got to stay in there now shamanism has this you know more greater flow um to it and so as i began learning more about shamanism through charles's teachings i found that i was offsetting this um, counterbalancing, I guess, is a better term. The masculine approach that I had been taking, uh, you know, the occultist pr- approach, and I was becoming more balanced. And what I mean by that is that the nature-based approach of shamanism was able to provide the offset and allow me to find this sense of balance, this equilibrium, this middle pillar. Um, in the work I was doing. And with that, I was really able to move forward and do things I didn't even, you know, previously think were, were possible. Um, you know, expanding my knowledge base and uh, skills and abilities. Um, but the shamanism, it's a whole different way of thinking. Again, you know, um, it's nature-based. It's a lifestyle is the best way I can describe it. Um, You become one with nature, one with the universe, 
And if you're familiar with Hermetic principles, we're, we're discussing that of mentalism, the all. And really the whole idea here uh, is that from a hermetic perspective, you know, you can say that the all is part of the everything and everything is part of the all. And that's actually part of living in harmony with nature. You know, there's always a give and take. You know, for every, you've got cause and effect. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You know, you have to find this sense of harmony in this balance. And that is what, excuse me, I found so appealing within the Native American culture is this constant quest for harmony. Yeah, it's not necessarily whether something is good or bad. They don't assign, you know, those definitions of those attributes to something. You know, it's just this cycle of nature. Um, it's just part of that cycle. It happens. You've got good and bad in everything, you know, light and dark. We're trying to to find this middle ground you know, where we find harmony. And that's where the meditation comes into play because that's what we're doing within meditation. We're trying to say, okay, on within our bodies, we've got masculine aspects, we've got feminine aspects. What we want to do is find our metal pillow. And we can do that, you know, and I describe it using electronics where we've got sympathetic and parasympathetic nerves which are masculine and feminine and then we've got the spinal column uh which we've got ganglia in there that allow the crossover from you know the the parasympathetic and sympathetic nerves are masculine and feminine um so we've got a triad there we've also got a triad in our mind our mind is kind of like a computer but within there we have our third eye and everybody is, oh yeah, I know all about the third eye. It's the pineal gland. Well, hey, you know, that that's wonderful, but the pineal gland is only one part of the third eye. It's called the third eye for a reason. And when you see it depicted, it's depicted within a pyramid, a triangle. And that is, it has a reason for that. The third eye is actually comprised of the pineal gland, of course, the pituitary gland, and the thalamus. And from an electrical perspective, it functions as a harmonic generator. And that harmonic generator, if you can align that with the rest of your mind and your body and your spirit to get it to harmonize, um, it resonates. And that's how we're able to uh, elevate and attain this higher level of consciousness, consciousness because we're in harmony. We really feel better. And that's what meditation helps us to do. Um, and it's in alignment of our emotions, of our thoughts, and our decisions. You know, getting, getting everything lined up. And if you really want to look back at it, you know, fo- you know, folks like Tesla. Tesla said that if you understand three, six, and nine, then you understand the universe. Um, and if you go forward, you'll find you know, many occultists will tell you about three, but they truly don't understand. Three is an important number. It's the first geometric number that we have. 
So it's and that that's why we find it in everything. Everything in nature has it. Well, thank you so much for uh, um, giving us so much of your time. I really appreciate it. If people want to find you online, where's the best place to find, uh, yeah, to get in contact with you or you know find other writings or? Okay, um, I now have my website up, and it's live. They're welcome to visit that. Um, still working on it but it's there and you can visit it at stonedtemplar.com and i can all say it again it's stonedtemplar.com or you could uh i have my author's page on facebook which is re frets and it should bring it up if you do a facebook search on there um, I'm not sure what other contact information that she may like. I'm sure um, that, that's that's enough to get them get them started. I think. Um, so what? Uh, obviously, you have the book out now. Do you, um, do you have? And I think in the book you say this is the first of a series of books. Um, do you have the next one planned out, ready, or? I have it planned out. I probably, to be honest with you, have another. I'm going to say a year and a half, maybe two years of work. Uh, cranking out books like this is not an easy process. It, it's not like a uh, a guy that's writing historical fiction or something along that line where, okay, yeah, I only need a few bits and pieces. I have to go back and be able to, number, uh, number one, okay, find the information and then make sure that it's sourced and vet the source mm -hmm. so that I'm not speaking or addressing something inappropriately or you know, because that that creates credibility problems. I I'm trying to be as forthcoming as I can on these things to do it as accurately as possible. Uh, a lot of what I write about is original stuff, but again, I try to uh, identify and document what those processes are so people can go back uh, and replicate it. And that's the whole idea behind a scientific approach is being able to replicate what has been previously done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Oh, well, thanks a lot. Again, this is a great conversation and um, I'll have to get you back on again at some point because there's so many other things we could talk about in the book. So we'll have to uh, we'll have to definitely have another conversation soon. Well, absolutely. You know, it would be my pleasure and I would look forward to that opportunity. And we are back. That was a really interesting conversation, I think. And uh, yeah, I definitely want to have Richard back on at some point because there's so much stuff there. I mean, there's so much in the book that we could have gone into. And, you know, uh, I wish we could, you know, do epically long episodes. When it comes to these sorts of interviews, you know, you kind of really want to, uh, you know, get as much in as, you know, squeeze as much juice as you can out of the guest. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to, you know, keep them on the line for three or four hours i'm sure i know some podcasts do do that um but <clears throat> i think I, i'd like to leave uh leave you wanting more so uh hopefully you you got something out of that episode anyway if you want to um if you want to get in contact with us or keep up with us or know what we're up to it's at sitting now on i think every platform now i think even facebook i think i managed to change it to at sitting now but uh if not it's right where you're sitting now but everywhere instagram uh we've even got a discord uh, i'm not gonna 
give that one out yet because I haven't actually built it properly yet. We've sort of been testing it out a little bit, but we're going to have a Discord up soon. Uh, and uh, I was alluding to it before, we're going to have a Patreon on, up soon as well. So um, uh, we have, we've got so many so many new things coming. It's, it's quite exciting, actually. We've got tons of new stuff coming for you. And I'm really uh, I'm looking forward to you know, rolling it out. And uh, yeah, anyway, enough of the waffle. Um, you've probably had enough of me by now. And you're going to get some more of me in a couple of days' time, but with the uh, luminous... Mark Satir joining me and we will be doing another Kenneth Grant related episode so I know uh, I know that that was a popular one so and I know people are you know desperate for some Kenneth Grant related information so uh, you will be sated on the next episode and that's all I will say anyway I'll see you next time and uh, yeah see you in a couple of days